All right, good morning again. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, as I've already mentioned, my name is Glenn, one of the pastors here at the Rock Church. I want to welcome you in-house, also those of you who are watching online. And uh, yeah, it's great to be with you. Um, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles. Um, <laughs> I love when I do that. I ask, open your Bibles, and people look at me and go, what? Thank you. On your phone, on a tablet, or if you have a Luddite version, you know, the printed one, that'd be great too. Uh, we do have Bibles on the back table there. If you wanted to grab one, you could do that. To Matthew chapter 5, we are continuing our series in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we've titled it, of course, The Good Life According to Jesus and Human Flourishing According to Jesus. And so it's been interesting so far. We're going to be totally in just four verses today. And as I mentioned to someone earlier today, that, that doesn't mean it's going to be 15 minutes long, okay? It's probably going to be longer. It's an amazing passage. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 20 this morning. And so we are obviously moving on. I think we spent three weeks, maybe four in total, with an introduction in the Beatitudes, in those macarisms. Remember that word, macarism? Uh, makarios, which is blessed, which is literally meaning flourishing. And, and so we've been looking at that for the past several weeks, and it's really a significant introduction that I believe achieved a few goals from Jesus' perspective. When he got up on that day, he had some goals in mind. First of all, he's wanting to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's why he's here, and he's got a lot on his mind when it comes to that. But he also is looking out on that day, and he knows the diversity of the group in front of him. Now, I know we've been over this, but I want to repeat it because it comes up again today. And so what he sees in front of him is, yes, there's some disciples at his feet, and there's a crowd, a great crowd of people following as well. And he knows that two specific philosophical worldviews are in the room or on the hill. And the first, of course, is the Judeo, uh, the Jewish tradition, uh, religious tradition. And the second would be the Greco-Roman philosophy. And so he knows they're there, and that's why he begins and uses that language, that word, makarios, which to their ears would have been like, okay. This is about the good life. This is going to be a great seminar, right? And so they're, they're listening, and they're listening carefully to him. Secondly, what he presented was, and again, as we've seen a few times, it became clear as he got into the third and the fourth beatitude, he was presenting something that we describe as an upside-down kingdom. The Jewish people were expecting a savior who would come, who would overrule the Roman warlords and, and put his rule and reign in place like now. Now. That's what their hope was. But very quickly, they're like, hold on, hold on. And the same thing for the Greco-Romans. They're thinking like, poor in spirit? Meek? Seriously. Like somehow that's going to get me to the good life, is being, having these type of characteristics and attributes. And so their attitude towards what would produce a meaningful and purposeful life is completely turned upside down. But I hope, as you have seen in the last few weeks, it's how you and I flourish in this day. We don't do the Beatitudes, act that way in order to be blessed by God. No, if we're in Christ, we already are. And it's an invitation by Christ to live into it, live into the Beatitudes, these wonderful character traits. And so finally then, having laid out the attributes of a person who is truly flourishing in the kingdom of God, Jesus has prepared them all for what I'm going to call today the meat of his sermon. These four verses. Everything that comes after these four verses is an exposition, an illustration, an application of what he says right here. 
read with me. It won't be on screen. We'll read the passage, and then I'm going to pray one more time. Jesus, looking out to his disciples in the crowd, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, thank you again. (laughs) Thank you for everything. Thank you for just small little things. Thank you, Lord, that um, we, we can just look out and even on a cloudy day, a moody day like this, just look up at the mountains that are somewhat hidden, but also just watch the clouds moving around and we can understand that you are blessing us. It's beautiful, actually. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that for all of us here today, as we prayed earlier, because some of us, Lord, we, we, we aren't seeing the clouds that way. We're not actually seeing our lives that way. There are struggles. There are lots of hurts, lots of pain, and Lord, you know all about it. So Holy Spirit, I pray today that um, through the words of Christ and through your working in us and amongst us and through the meager words that I have here, you will bless our hearts. You will truly encourage us today. So I'm, I'm asking for your help here today as I deliver this word. And I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So over the past little while, I was thinking about it. Uh, it's, it seems to be a bit of a pattern. It goes back to last Christmas. Remember, we went through the Advent series, The Light of the World. And I started asking questions. You guys know me. If you've been around a little while, I ask a lot of questions, and hopefully we try to answer them. But, but we've basically been asking questions this way. What problem is blank trying to solve? Or, or what problem is blank, whatever it might be, fill in the blank, solving? And so when we were looking at the series, uh, The Light of the World, who is Jesus, of course, during his coming in the Advent series at Christmas, we asked that question, what, what, is, what problem is light Solving. Duh. It was pretty simple, right? The problem of darkness. Jesus is coming into this world, casting light into this world, which has interesting properties, and, but in, in him it's truth, the truth of God, and it's exposing darkness and coming into the darkness and bringing light into that darkness. It's a beautiful picture. Same, same thing last week. We were looking at salt and light, right? So we asked the question, what is salt? Solving. What, I mean, pardon me, start with light again. What is that same thing? Light is solving the problem of darkness. And then we looked at salt, the other way around, right? And we asked the question, what is salt solving? Anybody? Some of you were here last week. Oh, I love this. I'm just going to wait here. But yes, I know. Solving the problem of decay and corruption. 
in this world. It's solving that problem as a preservative. So today, we're going to look at what I'm going to propose, humbly, is the greatest problem that we all face. That every human being who's ever been born, who's alive today, whoever will be, faces. It's the greatest problem. It's a problem for which Jesus came to solve more than anything else. And it's a game like the other two that we've mentioned, a problem that only, listen, Jesus can solve, which is good news because he came, he solved it, and he's continuing to solve this problem. So what might that problem be? It was in our text this morning. Righteousness. The greatest problem that every human being has is the problem of righteousness. And listen, here's the question, why is that? And some of you are going to be going, okay, why? And what I'm going to say is you're going to be going, huh? Well, I'll I'll put it to you this way. It's because none of us have it. (laughs) Maybe that would get your attention. Um, We're going to get to the biblical evidence of that in the text and through the story of what we look at today. But what I want to suggest to you is this. At this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing this issue, and the question has to be again, why? Well, because, as I've mentioned, both primary worldviews that are represented in front of him and are very much alive and well today believe they can personally, in their own power and strength, solve this problem. That's why they believe what they believe, and they've been living out their worldviews to attain and get to the good life, is because they believe they can solve this problem in their own strength. So essentially, they all know that righteousness is something they need, need more of at least in order to achieve the good life. It's, it's strange, isn't it? It's strange. It, it's a proof, quite frankly, to me that we're not evolving from others. Well, we're different, let's put it that way. That we were truly created in the image of God because we actually have these perceptions that we know we're lacking something. Where does that come from? Chance? Hardly. Hardly. So in the case of the Jewish religious leaders and their disciples, they thought this, the rigorous keeping of the law, right? And, and, and of course, all of the additional traditions that they had added to the law will make one righteous, or at least, and hopefully righteous enough to live the good life, but also to get to the point of approval and acceptance by God. So human effort based on outward keeping of rules and regulations. Just tell me. Give me a list of things that I got to do and watch me, Lord. And everybody else, you just watch me. I'll get there. Right. Same for the Greco-Roman. You see, they devised in that day and today, same thing, based on human reasoning, ethical and moral codes that if rigorously lived out, if applied to our lives, and and watch me, watch me in this world today, watch me do it, will produce a similar result. There's actually a word for this, which is a little different than the word that we want to hear. Really what I'm describing is what? (laughs) Self-righteousness. 
it's the attaining of righteousness through our own efforts. None of that happening here, right? None of that happening in this room or online or in this world today? Yes. If we're honest with ourselves, that approach to religion, to any way of life, apart from God and and him doing the work in us and for us, it's self-righteousness. And and here's what happens with self-righteousness, right? Because I know, I've I've been talking about t-shirts, like I've got the t-shirt, I've got a closet full of different t-shirts, I got this one too, right? You you, you self-righteous yourself, you you, you act self-righteously, and then when you're questioned, what do you do? You self-justify, right? You make excuse, well, you know, like, okay, so I slipped up, but like 90% of the time I'm doing great. Self-justify, again, think about that. In light of the gospel, in light of the scripture, can we self-justify? Let alone make ourselves fully and perfectly righteous? Clearly not. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works, lest anyone should or could boast. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. Okay. That is the beauty of the gospel. And Jesus is bringing it to those men and women on that day, and he's bringing it here this morning. So let me put verse, let us put verse 17 on line on screen for you, and we'll have a look at what he has to say here. So he opens up after this beautiful introduction that's kind of got them thinking that we're not quite sure where he's going or who this guy is. But obviously they've got some questions, Jesus says, right off the get-go. Do not think, I know what you're thinking, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay. So, look, for for you and I, and again, I've read commentators where there's some theologians out there, very few, who, who would say, you know, like, Matthew put this in here. It's really not part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? And, and the reason for that is it just seems really abrupt. It seems to the flow has been blessed, blessed, blessed. Okay, there was that bit about persecution, right? And the, right? But you're being blessed. And then the salt and light thing is the go command. It's awesome. It's beautiful. And now this. Well, no, it is what followed because Jesus intended it. But I got to suggest to you, in the hearing of those people in that day, all four verses would have sounded absolutely outrageous. I got to believe it's kind of like sometimes preachers can be preaching a sermon and sometimes people will actually get up and walk out. (laughs) Don't do that. It says in the scripture, the greatest preacher of all time, whose name is Jesus Christ, had that happen to him. And so it it may have even happened on this day. So he gets to this point, though, and and it's beautiful what he has to say. And and actually, quite frankly, it makes me smile whenever I read passages like this. Uh, and also, also spread my, uh, shake my head, pardon me, when, when today I, I hear people all the time, and listen, it's very, very true. Jesus was very gentle. He was humble. He was kind. He was loving. He's God. Yes, of course, he was. But combative, judgmental, disagreeable, unafraid to speak truth, and to call you out publicly in front of other people? 
in these four verses, certainly in the last one, it's exactly what he does. I'm sure his tone was very loving, though. Because <laughs> tone's important. It's very important. It is. It truly is. But he's not afraid to speak truth into a situation. He sees their faces. So actually, the standard approach I wanted to say was this. Uh, with these four verses is to spend most of the sermon, most of the time, uh, unpacking the complexities of the law and the prophets, the relationship they have between the people of Israel and God, the covenantal aspects that speak to the realities of the old covenant that's now passing away and the new covenant that's coming in Christ and that he's initiating and much more. Now, that's something that maybe historically and theologically you want to dig into in missional community group this week because for today what I would like to do is summarize those big ideas because most of them in that day, the Jewish people for sure, knew much about the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And yet, as we will see, they got most of it wrong. Well, let's put it this way. They got the heart of it wrong. Completely. Otherwise, they would probably wouldn't have missed the Messiah, correct? So as we've seen for weeks now, Jesus knows his audience. I've already said that this morning. He knows their positions. He knows their history. He knows all of it. He's God, right? And he knows what they're literally thinking. So at this point, he knows, specifically related to the Jewish people who are present, that they are thinking primarily two things. First, they've been following him for some time. And they've been watching him. They're watching him very carefully. They're keepers of the law. And what have they seen him doing, especially on the Sabbath? Right? They have seen him healing on the Sabbath. What? They've seen him with his disciples walking through a field and picking grain. Oh, wrong. Breaking the law. Missed the whole point of the Sabbath, Right? But they've seen him doing that. So they've got these questions. They're like, look, he, he is not behaving at all like a Messiah. I mean, a Messiah is going, is going to be one who completely upholds the law, keeps the law, loves the law. We have some questions here. Secondly, the Beatitudes were a huge tip-off to them that whatever changes were coming via the Messiah and a new covenant, something, by the way, they knew from the Old Testament was going to happen, that there would be a new covenant. What they were hearing from him simply didn't make any sense again. And I, 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 we all should give them some sympathy. <laughs> again, they're under Roman oppression for their faith. Greco-Roman oppression in their culture. Far worse than we experience in this world today, although it's coming. So we should cut them some slack, I think. So they had their doubts. Jesus then opens his teaching by saying something like this. Listen, whatever you're thinking about me and my relationship to the law and the prophets, you've got this part wrong anyway. I did not come to abolish anything. Now, that's interesting if you think about it because why would they be thinking that these things would be abolished, right? I mean, that's interesting. He doesn't get into that. He doesn't really unpack that for them. But as I think about it, I think it's like the rest of us. Well, I know what I shouldn't do, and I also know what I should be doing, and I don't do those things, but I do do those things. Oh, my. I can't wait for the day where it won't matter anymore. 
You know, like trying to keep the law or live a good life in your own strength and power, it's a heavy burden, you know. So maybe they were actually hoping he was going to abolish it. So that part, I think, would have been interesting to them. The word abolish in the original language means this literally, to destroy, to throw down, or demolish. That's the word that's translated from probably the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking, that they used in the Greek, that Matthew used to explain what Jesus said to them. So he's saying, look, I didn't come to destroy, throw down, or demolish the law and the prophets at all. So don't hear it that way. So maybe for our modern ears, of course, especially when you add the word fulfill at the end, we might think he's saying that he will complete, right? Anybody ever heard that? Or bring to an end these things, the law in particular. I want to suggest in the beginning, don't don't walk out now when I say this. That might be a bit of a mistake. So first again in their hearing, they understood the term the law and the prophets to mean this. We hear that and we're like, was that the Ten Commandments? And no, In their hearing, it meant the five books of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the law given in those books, and all of the prophets. In their mind, it's code. It's simple code. It means the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets means the whole thing. Therefore, when we hear Jesus or anyone in the New Testament, any of the New Testament writers using that phrase, they are speaking about, when they use the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament. So that's important. That's an important point, as we'll see as we get to our conclusion today. And so what exactly, then, is Jesus getting at here? Well, two things, at least, to start with. First, he is promising that he has no intention of abolishing, but of fulfilling them. So now again, they have to be asking the question, okay, that's great, but exactly, okay, what do you mean by that? Quite frankly, again, in in their defense, they probably had not heard that the Messiah is going to come and fulfill these things, at least in the way that Jesus is putting it across, and so they're, they're listening. And so to help them understand, and us as well, Jesus adds this really interesting verse in our text to clarify a very important point. Verse 18, he says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Man, such a key verse. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever owned a King James Version Bible. Come on, hands up. Anybody ever owned a King James Version? Good, good. Some of you are almost as old as me. That's great. It's a great translation. Uh, the ESV, which we use, uses the words iota and dot. Anybody remember what the King James used? Because I much prefer it. Jot and tittle, right? Like, it's awesome. Those two words are like, yes. Jot. Okay. Here's the thing. I, again, when, when they heard these words, the, the, the actual Hebrew word would be yod, right? So they hear these words. And when, what Jesus is saying, like, so the, the jot is, is literally like a, a little, it's, it's like, like even a tiny little scratch of an apostrophe or a comma, but it's more like an apostrophe. And, and the tittle is, if anyone you, you know, 
you know, fonts, you got non-serif and you got serif, serif fonts. So you look at a serif fonts, the ones that have the little curly cues on the sides or the bottoms or the tops or whatever, that's a tittle, right? A jot and a tittle. And that's exactly what's being used here and what Jesus is saying. So now look at the full statement. First, Jesus says, until twice in this verse, until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished, both of which I want to suggest to you actually haven't fully occurred in case you are wondering. And the word important here, fully occurred. (laughs) Still some things to come. So we'll come back to this, but let's go back to verse 17 first. Again, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Once again, what is Jesus saying? This is so good. They would not have likely pieced this together in that day, on that day, but we can today. We can do that today because we are 2,000 years out from the cross, right? We've not seen it in our own lives, but we've read about it through the history of the church. The whole New Testament scripture speaks to what actually has happened. And so what Jesus is declaring to them was this. The whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, the whole of the law and the prophets, listen, point to him. Their Messiah, the Savior that they've been praying for and doing sacrifices and and, uh, trying to, so that he would come again, is standing right there in their presence on that day. And he is saying to them, it's pointing to me. It's pointing to me. If, If you read the New Testament, even some of the Gospels and Jesus' own words, he repeats that. And, and shows that to them on a regular basis. Remember when we ended the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, one of my favorite passages, um, the road to Emmaus, remember that, right? It's on the day that Jesus is risen from the dead and two of his disciples are, are discouraged. They, you know, they haven't seen him. They've heard rumors that the, that the tomb is empty and that he's risen, but they haven't seen him. And so they're going home. They're, they're, heading, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're heading home and Jesus comes up alongside them on the road, the risen Jesus. They don't recognize him. And they ask him to come into the house. They, they know there's something about this man. They, they just ask him to come into the house and stay the night with them. And he does and he breaks bread with them and that's how they actually recognize him is maybe through his nail-pierced hands or wrists. But Luke also records this in chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with, look at this, Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. I've always said this, best Bible study ever, right? Can you imagine being there and Jesus starting from Genesis and through the whole Old Testament and going, see, that's me. See, that's about me. See, that's about me coming. That's, by the way, Psalm 22, that's me on the cross. I'm not there yet, but that's what's going to happen. It's all pointing to him. And that literally is, I believe in that verse, at this point in the sermon, he's saying to them, guys, the whole Old Testament 
is pointed to me. And, and you know what? I know, I know, you should know, we should know that they, some of them got it. How do we know that? They wrote the New Testament, and it declares that. It point after point after point after point, beginning in the beginning of Matthew with the genealogy, right? All of the, the prophecies that are fulfilled about Jesus, did they come true? 100%. Are there more to come? Yes. Will they come true? Yes? Yes. Most definitely they will. So finally on this verse then that we've been looking at, they will soon learn as they look back, as I've already suggested, on his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that he did fulfill all, 100% of the Old Testament prophecies about him. They would also discover how he fulfilled all three of the key components of the law. He fulfilled the three of them. They're called the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. And again, this is a great excursus. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that today. You could study that. But essentially, it looks like this. The moral law, specifically the Ten Commandments, you all know those, right? The Ten Commandments were perfectly kept in every way by Jesus, including the Sabbath, because he's going to teach on that. They just didn't get the heart of the Sabbath. It wasn't about you couldn't, you couldn't carry a needle with you because, well, if you were a seamstress, that would be working. Like, was one of the, they took the law and expanded on it into some ridiculous areas, and Jesus said, no, you didn't really get that. He broke no moral laws. None. Let me just be clear. You and I have probably broken them all. <laughs> Many times. And next week, when we go into... Anger, he's going to show us, (laughs) oh yeah. And the six examples that he's going to teach on, expound on this. We've all broken the moral law. He, instead, was sinless and perfectly, here's the word, righteous. That is so important. The judicial law and the ceremonial laws were fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. He fulfilled the demands of the law on the cross, and in those two cases, done. The words, it is finished, done. Fully fulfilled. So it is here, however, that I want to suggest to you errors are made when we attempt to understand how the law in particular applies to us as Christians today. I hear this one a lot. It's okay. If you've ever said it to me, I forgive you. Well, actually, the Lord forgives you. But people sometimes will be pressed about sin in their lives or, you know, whether they should give or not give, et cetera, et cetera. And people love to trot this one out, hey, from Galatians, right, or from Romans, two different places. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Great. That's a bit of a misunderstanding. Let me just be clear. Of course we're under grace. Of course we are. But in some ways, as we're going to see, the law still applies. So verse 18 again, he says this, For truly I say to you, look at the words underlined, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And again, I want you to remember and see that there are two untils. You'll also note that in this particular verse, Jesus has dropped the prophets. He's not repeated that. So he's now speaking more about the moral law, and is still more certainly in view for those who are, listen, 
not in Christ. In the same way as it was for Jesus' Jewish audience in that day. The moral law still applies. It still applies. And as he will demonstrate in the six examples that follow in this sermon, again, as I've alluded to, and beginning with the first, thou shalt not murder. Does that apply today? I sure hope so. (laughs) I wish more people would pay attention to that one. Right? Jesus is going to show us that we all break that law. The heart of it anyway. So here's the point. Jesus has fully has fully, past tense, fulfilled all the law and the prophets. And the point is, as we considered in our introduction, we can't do that. We do not have that ability. We do not have this kind of righteousness or the righteousness that is required. What the people of Israel completely missed was that the law only pointed to righteousness, to the righteousness that they do not have, the need for perfect righteousness, which none of them or none of us has or can achieve through our own efforts. Good news. Jesus has it all. And the gift of salvation is the gift of his righteousness imputed to your account even though you don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, and we're fully made righteous. Hold on, really? Whew. How does that work? Keep reading your Bibles. That's how that works. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 20, right? When he says this, For I tell you, unless... Wow, challenging words. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Talk about outrageous. Talk about shocking. I mean, first of all, the Pharisees and the scribes are going, excuse me, you're calling us out in front of all these people. You're saying we're not good enough? Now the plebs, right? The regular Jewish people are going, oh dear. If they're not good enough, what hope is there for me? That's how that would look and sound in that day. It was really, really crazy. So basically, Jesus is saying, look, the the bar is extremely high. The bar is, Glenn, at five foot seven with your hair blow dried, you will never get over this. You'll never get over this bar, okay? You you might have thought you were a high jumper in high school. Forget it, okay? You can't get over this bar. This is good news. Such good news. And that, again, is the point. We cannot do this in our own strength. That said, This is important. The moral law fully fulfilled by Christ is still being fulfilled through his disciples, through you and I, if we are in Christ here today, in this day. Or it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Because Christ fulfilled the law, so too can those who belong to him. Remember we went through Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that God, look at these words, sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So when you and I walk in the spirit in this life today, 
We are fulfilling the righteousness of the law. We are putting that on display. Is it you and I who are doing it? (laughs) It's him who is doing it in us and through us. Amen? But that's the point. So friends, we're going to conclude this morning looking at one thing that I believe honestly is overlooked in this passage. Because again, you can get so... I can get, you can get, we can all theology, right? Get so fixated on the law and the prophets and going into, it's great. It's a great study. I love it. You should too. It's worth your time and worth your effort to do that. To most, it seems that the weightiest theological issue here is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets that Jesus came to accomplish. But I think it overshadows one other thing that he demonstrates in this passage that we need to see. And it is his very high view of the word of God. One uh, commentator who I read said, his view of the scripture gives me a nosebleed. His view of scripture is perfect. It's extremely high. And he's putting it on display for us right here. It's really, at the end of the day, the key point that he's making to the religious leaders of the day. From verse 18 in his strong assertion that not a jot or a tittle will pass away. Listen, mountains, seas, oceans, birds, plants, everything material out there that you see, that's going to pass away. His word will not pass away. Every jot and tittle of it will not pass. That's what he's saying. I think we need to take him at his word. He adds this in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So a question for you as we move to a conclusion here. and I try to show you something about this high view that he has. Do you remember the very first words that came out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Matthew? I have to open my phone here because I, I only thought of this this morning as I was praying about this passage and, and uh, the conclusion, and I want to read it for you. He's being baptized by John the Baptist, or he wants to be, right? And John the Baptist is like, I, I, you, you should baptize me. I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. Jesus' words, first words in Matthew, the first words in the New Testament of the Savior are these. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to look, fulfill all righteousness. It just struck me today, that this morning, that I should mention that. But then what happens? He's baptized, the sky's open, right? The, the words, the mouth, the actual voice of God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And a dove representing the Holy Spirit comes and rests on him. And then that Holy Spirit takes him by the hand into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by whom? By the devil. Three times the devil comes at him with temptations. Do you remember what Jesus replied with? Three times. It is what? Written. Three times. He says this. He quotes the Old Testament three times. Listen, he quotes the Old Testament, not a paraphrase. Word for word, jot and tittle. Every single word he quotes. He confirms this by, in a very interesting way, by the way, in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Look at what he says here. 
I'll put the, we'll put the first half on screen first. Have you not read, listen, he's talking to those in, in that day about marriage. It's about marriage. And he says, have you not read that he who created them, who could that be? God, right? From the beginning made them male and female. I'm just going to say the words. I'm not going to try to overly emphasize it, but it's really clear what Jesus is saying. Is it not? And then look at those two words, and said. So the implication would be that the creator God from the beginning made them female, male and female, and then he said this. Look at this next part. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We all know these words, right? So there's a mother and a father, a male and a female, a male and a female getting married. I don't need to go on about that, do I? Maybe? Every jot and tittle. This is so important, guys. This is really important. Every jot and tittle. You know what's most interesting about this? Go back to Genesis and Genesis 2 and read it. There are no quote marks around the words, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Those are the words of the author of Genesis. He's not quoting God speaking to him per se. He's writing it. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying this. If Moses wrote it, God said it. Do you get it? If Moses wrote it, God said it. It it goes on through the whole New Testament. Peter, I believe in 2 Peter, talks about uh, David, and and, and he he quotes David. And and the reality is is that he, he says, God said, and it's actually David who wrote it. In Jesus' mind and in all of the New Testament authors' mind, here's the deal. We need to understand this. We need to park this and truly believe this today. If it is written, it doesn't matter whether it's Moses, Daniel, any of the prophets, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, Peter, James, the author of Hebrews, who we don't know necessarily who it was, God said it. We live in a day and age, I want to leave you with this point, when fewer and fewer of those who claim to be Christian hold to the truth that the Bible is the infallible and inerrant word of God. Barna did a research study about seven, eight years ago of pastors (laughs) of all denominations in the United States. Guess what? 75% didn't fully agree with the statement that the Bible is perfect, is the absolute word of God, and that we should take it for its word. No wonder there's confusion in the church. Amen? No wonder. So here's the thing. Friends, as I say, we live in this day. Many are saying things like, we need to get unhitched from the Old Testament. Right? Why do we need to get unhitched from the, New, the Old Testament? Well, simple. The New Testament's got some teaching in it that's pretty culturally difficult, right? But the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, you know, he smites a lot of people. So we need to unhitch Christianity from that because it's difficult enough explaining Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul. So we need to unhitch from that. 
authors and speakers, listen, I want to give you a little bit of a hint, a clue. It's a good, I think it's a good filter for you to use going from here. Anytime you hear someone on a podcast or a speaker or someone commenting about a book or even in the beginning of a book where someone has to actually say to you, oh, and by the way, they have a very high view of Scripture, can I just suggest something? Put on your Holy Spirit spidey sense, okay? Because like, why would you even have to say that other than for the fact that you're probably going to go and distort the Word of God? To what? To fit your thesis and the point of your talk or your book. One famous now discredited pastor loved to say this, I believe in the authoritative, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and his name is Jesus. Doesn't that sound good? We've just read, Jesus said, if Moses wrote it, God said it. Jesus doesn't want us separating himself and his teachings and what he has accomplished and done on our behalf from the whole word of God. So in these profound words of Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Jesus declares, he is what the Old Testament is all about. He is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets and what they pointed to. He is the righteousness that we all need and the scripture is all we need for faith, life, fulfillment, and flourishing in this life and in the life to come. Do you trust him and that? I pray you do. Pray with me, would you?